So Judges chapter 17. Now a man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which I heard you utter a curse, I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. When he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. I will give it back to you. So after he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave them to a silversmith who used them to make the idol and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. A young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of some other place to stay. On his way, he came to Micah's house in the hill country of Ephraim. Micah asked him, where are you from? I'm a Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, he said, and I'm looking for a place to stay. Then Micah said to him, live with me and be my father and priest. And I'll give you ten shekels of silver a year, your clothes and your food. So the Levite agreed to live with him, and the young man became like one of his sons to him. Then Micah installed the Levite, and the young man became his priest and lived in his house. And Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest." Uh, friends, uh, it's great to be here again as we look at this last bit of Judges. I hope you've enjoyed our journey through Judges so far. It's been quite a sort of quick one in a way, five weeks, to try and get a snapshot of the whole book and see how it all sort of progresses. Today we've come to the last little bit uh, of Judges, but before we get to the actual story we just read, um, many of us, I'm sure, will, will know of pictures that look like uh, this. Uh, it's by the famous artist MC Escher. And the thing about Escher's work, if you know it, is it, it looks really quite boring at, at first. Until you, The more you look at it, the stranger and weirder it becomes, right? So you look at this picture and you think, oh, they're just some guys walking around uh, the top of a building. But if you sort of just keep looking at it, you realise, hang on, the steps are all going down or, or they're all going up all the time. And sort of this, uh, this bizarre optical illusion... Um, I got this one on the weekend. Uh, Willow uh, shared this one. And this will just make you sick if you look at it very, very long. It's a similar sort of thing. It looks sort of obvious at the start, but then the more you look at it, the more bizarre it is. Don't look at it too long or it will actually sort of... Yeah, anyway, I'll, I'll spare you the pain. Let's, let's move on. Here's another one. <laughs> uh, you, and you can see this again... Uh, it looks just really ordinary at first, like there's nothing to see here, but the more you look, the more twisted it gets. It's a little bit like that as we come to the end of Judges here, and particularly chapter 17 of Judges that Steve just read out for us. 
there are a whole lot of things that on the surface just look really ordinary and normal, right? Uh, or at least they seem pretty small and insignificant. But the closer you look at this chapter, the more twisted and weird and bizarre it gets. Uh, the illusion, or the illusion in chapter 17, it's not just for fun. Uh, the illusion is actually a devastating one. And it leads to incredible misery, incredible misery to terrible evil. And it actually brings the whole people of Israel to the brink of destruction. Well, uh, keep those things in mind, uh, because as we sort of travel on in in Judges, uh, if you've been reading with us all uh, up to this point so far, and you get to chapter 17 you realise that it's something completely different to what's come before. There's no more judges. Uh, You'll you'll recognise this. We've been showing it pretty much every week, this cycle that goes through the judges. Uh, There's no more of this anymore. There's no more judges being raised up from chapter 17 right through to the the end. Um, uh, The story of the judges is sort of sandwiched in between uh, the... Here we go. There we go. There we are. So we have the, had the introduction at the start. The judges is this cycle or really a spiral down and down and down. And then you get to these last few chapters at the end. And there's something different to what we've had before. Uh, we saw the cycle that's governed it so far. Uh, these last few chapters, that should actually read chapters 17 to 21. These last few chapters, um, they, give, uh, they round off judges as a book. They sort of give the conclusion to the whole thing. Uh, And the focus so far, if you've been reading it, it's been on the threats to Israel that have come from outside, right? So they've had um, uh, countries uh, who have enslaved them and have come in and taken them captive and they've cried out to God and God has raised up a judge uh, over and over again. It's been sort of external threats for the Philistines, the Midianites and all those guys. But here in chapter 17, the camera shifts from big political sort of issues into this really sort of quite intimate, homey scene of this one guy, Micah, uh, the lives of ordinary people. The last few chapters, not, uh, as we go off from chapter 17, uh, they give two snapshots, two kind of scenes of what it was like to live in this time, right? It's two, two scenes, uh, what, it, what it looked like for God's people to forget Yahweh, to turn away from him, Uh, to turn to the idols of their culture. And it shows where that sort of thing leads to. And it's not pretty. It's a picture of absolute chaos. If you can't see the screen down there, uh, the first couple of chapters here, this one and chapter 18, it tells of the religious chaos, the religious just chaos that happens as God's people turn away from him and to the idols of the world around them. Uh, Then you get to the end of the chapter, uh, the end of the book, and it switches from religious chaos to moral chaos. It is a, a, a scene, if you read it, you know, we sort of talked about this in our home group on Friday, uh, you might have read it through the week. It is a scene of absolute terrible moral chaos. And more on that later, so you can look forward to that. Uh, but just like an illusion, uh, when we come to chapter 17, just like an illusion... Uh, it can seem at first glance that there's sort of nothing really to see here. So that what we've just seen, that sort of sets the scene for this. Now we're zeroing in on 
chapter 17, this story of Micah and his idols and what's going on there. Uh, it seems like there's nothing going on. It's just this, this weird story about a son and his mum. We sort of jump halfway into the story, if you notice that. You just sort of are suddenly in the middle of this scene between a mum and his son. Uh, the mother apparently has had a whole lot of money go missing, a massive amount, sort of her life savings. The son uh, turns up and says, oh, hey mum, that money that you have been missing and Look, I heard you utter a curse about it the other day, so just got to fess up that I took it. I mean, here it is. He doesn't actually say I took it. He just says, here it is. You're meant to assume that he's stolen his mother's life savings. So it just paints a bit of a picture for who, what sort of a character this guy is. Uh, uh, they seem to be followers of Israel's God, of the Lord, as you see him uh, through there, Yahweh, the mother uses the Lord's name to bless her son after he gives the money back. The son, this guy Micah, he is a religious guy, right? He's a religious guy. Uh, he wants to do the right religious stuff and he's even willing to fork out money to pay a priest. Okay, so he's a religious guy. But of course, there's much more going on. And if you just dig a little bit under it, it's kind of like one of those drawings at the start. It is a scene of... Chaos and just, it's so twisted. Uh, it's a story of religious chaos. Well, let's dive in, friends. If you do have your outline, that will help you, as well as um, your Bible in front of you, as always, that will be real, uh, really helpful for, for you as we do travel through this story of Micah. Uh, we jump right in, as I said, to the middle of the story, and she's lost this money. He overhears this curse. Uh, and perhaps he's feeling guilty. Maybe it's just he's worried about the curse. You know, he kind of hears his mum utter a curse and he's possibly a little superstitious. Uh, and so he goes back to mum and he confesses up to taking it. And, but mum turns her curse into a blessing for this guy. She says, the Lord bless you, my son. She we're told that she consecrates the silver to the Lord. Uh, she says in verse 3, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord. But did you notice what comes next? And already the kind of twisted nature of this, the chaos, the disorder is starting to show. I consecrate this silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver. And as soon as you read that, you know something dodgy is going on. Okay. Uh, not only is this guy a bit of a shady character, this son, he's not just a shady character, uh, stealing his mum's life savings. When she gets her money back, she gives, it, gives a, a portion of it to him to make an idol with. I consecrate it to the Lord so my son can make an idol. The very thing the Lord hates, the very thing that has led the whole people of Israel, away from God, the worship of idols. So Micah takes some money and uh, that's supposed to be consecrated to Yahweh, as you read on. He turns it into an ephod and a few household gods. He sets up this shrine and it gets worse. As you read through the story, um, it just gets worse. God, uh, you see, God had appointed people to be priests among his, his people. He appointed one tribe, the tribe of Levi. 
the Levites, they were the ones who were to be priests in his service. But did you notice as you read through, Micah just feels totally at ease to make his son his priest. He sort of of grabs the nearest uh, available young man and says, right, you know, you're my son, you can be my priest, jump on board. (laughs) You get the picture as we as we read along, that this is a kind of DIY religion, right? It's do-it-yourself religion. Make it up as you go along, dip in a little bit here and a little bit there, a little bit from Yahweh, a little bit from the culture, the gods around you, mash it all together. (laughs) Do you see what is coming out here in this scene of, which really on the first reading seems quite ordinary, is actually a scene of deep... Uh, chaos, deep religious chaos. But then you get to verse 7 and another character sort of pops out of nowhere, this guy, this Levite. Uh, We're told that he's been living in Bethlehem, he's a young guy, he's set out on his own. We're not told why, maybe he's looking for adventure, Uh, but he's he's sort of directionless, okay? Maybe he's uh, a Levite on a gap year, wandering around and looking (laughs) looking for work, on a working holiday, but he's sort of out of place too. Um, the Levites, if you, if you know the story of how, uh, the, uh, how God's people have come into the land, the Levites, they didn't have their own special place to live in as a tribe, but they were given towns. They were given their own towns to live in, um, particular cities. Uh, one, of, one sort of family within the Levite tribe the family of Aaron, were the sort of main priests and the rest of the tribe were meant to help them do their priestly duties. Okay, that's sort of the background to this guy. Uh, So uh, the Levites were, and and the Levites also, they they weren't supposed to work uh, sort of services for rent, what is it, uh, return for services paid or something. Uh, they, They were given a tenth of um, the, the takings, the, the, what uh, Israel made to support them, this, this idea of a tithe. So with all of that in mind in the background, when you see a wandering Levite for hire, wandering away from his town, sort of looking for, to make a, a quick buck through becoming someone's priest, you're meant to know that something is up here. He either doesn't know anything about God's law or he just doesn't care doesn't care. And when Micah sees him, he sort of grabs hold of the situation. He, he, he grabs him and then he, he makes this Levite his priest. We're not told what happens to, the, to Micah's son. <laughs> you notice that? The son just sort of disappears. <laughs> All of it, you know, Micah's upgraded to the latest model and the, the old one is obsolete and he doesn't need him anymore, even though he's his son. He, he grabs the priest, installs him as his, uh, as his priest, the Levite, uh, and you can sort of see from Micah's perspective, surely, you know, a Levite is going to be more profitable for him, spiritually speaking, than his own son. I mean, this, this guy is from the tribe of the priests, so get him in. But it's also, you know, it's a sweet deal for the Levite as well, as he's coming around. It's, it's a good deal for him, a steady income, he gets rent, he gets clothes, he... So, for 10 shekels and a shirt and a roof over his head, uh, Micah sells his religious duties, uh, the Levite, sorry, sells them to Micah. And Micah's a happy man. Did you notice right at the end there, verse 13? 
Uh, and uh, someone in our home group on Friday brought this up, and it was very, I thought, uh, uh, a really good point. This, the ending here uh, is actually probably the worst part of the whole story. Verse 13, the last verse, uh, his final words. Uh, Israel, before, uh, before we read verse 13, um, you know uh, the, Isra- the story of Israel. The story of Israel was... Uh, that they were simply chosen by God because of his grace and his love to them. It wasn't because of anything that they did. Uh, right, this is a bit small, my apologies, but uh, right back uh, when God had brought Israel uh, out of Egypt and they'd started their life together as a nation, Moses had uh, preached this to the people. I'll just read it out. If you can't see it, just listen. Moses said to Israel, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see what's going on there? It wasn't because they were impressive. It wasn't because they did all the right religious stuff. It wasn't because they were the biggest and best that God loved them, that God was good to them. His relationship with them was always motivated by his Grace is gracious choosing of them, not by their works. They were called to be holy to him and obey him, not to sort of earn favour with him, but because they already had his favour. And yet Micah here in this chaos, in this world of sort of mixing a little bit of Yahweh with a little bit of the idols of the world around uh, he says this tragic words in verse 13. And with all of this in, back, in the background, we can start to hear just how tragic they are. Micah says, after everything that's happened, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since this Levite has become my priest. Now I know. Friends, this is idle theology. It's theology that doesn't know the true and living God. It's theology that sees God as something to be manipulated by me. If only I just pull the right levers, he'll do what I want. And friends, it is very religious. But it is religion that is meant to twist God's arm to get him to do what we want him to do. So Micah and his priests, do you see how just... Uh, what is at first a really bizarre, sort of weird, you know, ordinary story in a way, uh, just under, under the surface, it is a story of great uh, chaos and it's so twisted. But then tucked away right in the middle, you might have noticed I jumped over a verse. Uh, we looked at it earlier in the kids' talk, right? Tucked away in the middle is this verse. It's easy to miss, but it's kind of like I've called it a sleeper cell, okay? It's just tucked away in the middle there. It's waiting to be let out and erupted uh, and cause great horror. 
At this point in the story, it doesn't seem like much of a problem that everyone's doing as they see fit, what's right in their own eyes. But it is something, as you read the rest of Judges, the last few chapters, is something that leads to unbelievable and terrible evil. Chaos, the chaos that sort of starts here and we're shown in this, in, in a way, in an innocent little story, leads to, it sweeps up not just Micah, uh, but a whole tribe uh, later on, and then as you switch to the next scene, the whole nation, this little sleeper cell, <laughs> this everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, having no king, it leads to the situation where it is only by God's incredible grace that this people survive at all. It's only by his grace that they survive at all. Verse 6, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Uh, it's a phrase or a shorter version of it. Sort of, it's slotted in all the way through these last chapters and it ties it all together. Uh, it is just individualism, right? Uh, moral relativism, if you know what that is. Sort of, there's no right or wrong. Um, back in chapter 8, when we looked at the story of Gideon, we didn't look at that chapter specifically, but Gideon in chapter 8 says uh, that Israel had the Lord to rule over them. But all through you see the way they've rejected his rule. And when you do that, all that's left is what I think is right versus what you think is right. Right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's sort of the world that they're living in. There's no objective standard to any moral claim. And at this point, maybe you're thinking, it sounds kind of familiar. <laughs> it sounds a little bit familiar, maybe. So today, uh, in this environment, the only, option, the only option left is idolatry. It's man-made DIY religion. It's self-serving. And the great idol, the idol that lies behind all the others, is in the end me. <laughs> is in the end me, myself. It is doing as I see fit in my own eyes with no reference to God. Well, the last chapters of Judges, you just get a sense, you, you see, played out, just how terrible and chaotic this sleeper cell was for the Israelites. Um, the next chapter, chapter 18... Um, as, we, as you read on, you read about how this story of this little sort of intimate story about one family, it sweeps up a whole tribe, the tribe of Dan. They had had trouble taking possession of their land, so they're sort of wandering as well. And they come across Micah's house and they're, you know, they're a bit opportunistic too. They steal his priest and his gods and take him with them. Uh, and uh, the idol that Micah has made here with his mum's money ends up leading a whole tribe astray. <laughs> it becomes a snare for a whole tribe. Uh, and then as you go to the last few chapters, you move from religious chaos, okay, this sort of uh, what's on view here, this religious chaos, to moral chaos that just sweeps everyone up. When everyone does what's right in their own eyes, uh, it doesn't just break our relationship with our God. It breaks our relationships with each other. It corrupts everything. It's a graphic and horrible story. If uh, You'll know that if you read through it, perhaps during the week. 
Um, it's, it's about a different Levite. It's a little confusing when you read about a Levite, but it's a different one. Uh, and he stays overnight with his concubine in a town called Gibeah. Uh, the men of the town uh, commit a despicable atrocity. Uh, the Levite himself is an absolute coward. If you read through, he's just a coward. And the story ends up, I'll spare you the details, the story ends up uh, with a civil war between the tribe of Benjamin and the rest of Israel. Uh, This whole tribe almost gets totally annihilated. They get wiped out. They're only saved by another morally questionable act right at the end of the book. Um, The Israelites sort of come up with this thing to try and salvage the situation. And through it all, nobody comes off clean. As we saw earlier, it's only a miracle of God's grace that these guys survive at all. Uh, It's a picture of where individualism, of where moral relativism leads. What happens when there is no king in Israel, when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and it is ugly? Well, that's uh, Judges for you. Uh, Straight after the period of Judges... Uh, We saw this sort of little thing um, right at the start of the series, okay? This is, if you can, uh, this diagram shows you where Judges fits. Uh, Straight after the period of the Judges, so uh, this was the biblical timeline we looked at, the Old Testament uh, leading up to the cross, to Jesus. Uh, We saw how uh, the period of the Judges is in this section here between them going into the Promised Land and the kingdom of Israel being established. There we go. Straight after the period of the judges comes the period of the kings. Uh, and if you've heard the stories, you'll know of you know, Saul and David and Solomon uh, and the rest of the kings. And through it all, um, we're not, it's never quite sure you know, whether they're good or bad. It's sort of a bit ambiguous what's going on with these guys, the kings. But God had given them human kings, to sort of be his representatives. But even the best of them fail. They fail terribly. And in the end, they all, they all die. And like the judges, the kings, they point towards Jesus, the great king. God come to his people to rule over his people forever. Well, friends, um, as we sort of wrap up not only this Um, this little passage, but the whole series, on one level, uh, it's an obvious application for us as we think about this picture of chaos, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. Uh, Particularly in our culture, it's so relevant, isn't it? Everyone doing as they see fit, no king in Israel. This is the place where I insert um, witty comment about Australian politics this week. No king in Canberra (laughs) for now. Uh, but no, I mean, it's just so relevant, isn't it? In terms of our culture, there's no king. Everyone does as they... No authority, uh, especially not of any God. And it does lead to moral chaos as each of us go after what is right in our own eyes with no sort of objective standard to live by. Everything is simply at the, the whim of my own desires. My friends, we're not going to spend a lot of time thinking about Uh, the way this applies to us in our culture, because the real horror of this story is not that there was no king in the nations. 
The real horror of this story is that there was no king in Israel. That there was no king among the people of God. This chaos and relativism was at work among God's people. And I think this is where we must pay pay, uh, close attention and search our own hearts. See, for Micah and the Levites, the tribe of Dan... Uh, For all the guys that we sort of looked at in this story, religion was a way to get ahead. It was a way for them to get ahead. We saw earlier this idol theology. God's sort of something to be manipulated and I'll just pull the right levers, he'll do what I want. Um, They claimed Yahweh, but only because they thought he was worth it to them. Uh, and, and, you know, if they could benefit from the gods of the culture around them, the idols, then they'd jump on those as well, you know. They could... When everyone does what's right in their own eyes, the highest value is myself. Everything is, in, is sort of set against me and, you know, what I want, what's good for me, what's worth it for me, what's worth it uh, for my family, It's possible even to bring this to our relationship to God, isn't it? Serving and worshipping God, being part of his community. We can find ourselves measuring it by whether it's worth it to us, whether it fulfills our potential or makes us happy, makes me happy. We can bring this to our personal morality too, can't we? Making life decisions not thinking, what does my king want from me? But thinking, what does my desire want from me? As the primary thought in our hearts. But friends, the good news of the gospel, and it is good news, but it is news, the news of the gospel is not that all things considered, Jesus is worth it for you. The gospel is that he is worthy, that he is worthy. Being a Christian is not a matter of kind of weighing the options, you know, and, and maybe assessing here and a little bit here and there and coming out with the option that best suits you, the one that is most worth it for you. We don't serve God because he is worth it to us. We serve him because he is worthy. And we don't primarily proclaim that the gospel is about me being more fulfilled, a better person, uh, me receiving good things, if only I... No, we proclaim that there is a king in Israel and that in his death and resurrection he has become the king of the whole world. A king who deserves... And demands our lives, whether we acknowledge it or not. We proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And we serve him simply because he is worthy. He is the risen one. The glorious son of God. We don't serve him to manipulate him into giving us what we want. Like Micah. (laughs) We don't serve him for 10 shekels and a shirt like the Levites. 
and we would serve him and praise him even if we had no benefit from it for ourselves in this life. Even if all we had was trouble and sorrow and suffering. Even if there were things that we desperately long for that we never receive. We serve him because he is worthy. Because he is Lord. But, but friends... He is the good Lord. He is the good Lord. The risen King is the crucified King. The risen King is the one who died. He is the Lord of life. He is the Lord of love. And we trust Him when He says it's only in giving up our lives that we receive them. Uh, The great lie of this age is that freedom is found in rejecting authority. One of the great lies. Uh, Freedom is found in rejecting kingship. We think that when everyone's doing right in their own eyes, we think that that's liberation, right? That's freedom. (laughs) When in fact it is the greatest slavery. Slavery, well, it's slavery to me. (laughs) Slavery to self. And it only leads to chaos. There's a wonderful line. For those of you who have been in Anglican churches, you might know this, the Book of Common Prayer. Wonderful sort of source of rich theology. There's a wonderful line for those who um, went through um, the prayer book service each day. They would say this prayer. It was part of their prayer. Uh, You'd say it every day you'd pray this and you'd talk about God and the line goes like this. You might know it. Whose service is perfect freedom. Whose service is perfect freedom. Friends, we were made to be ruled. There is a king. We proclaim a king who will one day make everything new and before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And the great wonder, 